podcast entitled A Chicken in Every Pot. I am Coda Harrington. Uh, I teach politics at uh, University College Cork in Ireland and my colleague. Hi there, I'm Alex Rodden. Uh, I'm an Associate Professor in Politics at the University of Leicester. Opinions are very much my own rather than the university. Uh, and I'm delighted to be here again with Cloda and we'll introduce today's guest. Excellent. Thanks, Alex. So I am actually genuinely very excited to introduce our, our good friend, our colleague and esteemed academic all, all in one, um, who is Professor John White, um, speaking to us all the way from Catholic University in D.C. Um, I'm not going to mention all of John's uh, back catalogue because, you know, we want to get on to the, the, the meat of the show. But I'm just going to mention a couple of very uh, pertinent items. Um, he has many, many publications. There's one in particular that uh, we will be asking back for next year when it's actually hit the shelves. That is uh, the Republican Party, Donald Trump and the rise of authoritarianism. So plenty going on in that. Um, and that's from University Press of Kansas. Um, this year, and today, I suppose maybe this might be a little bit more where we are today. Um, John actually has a new textbook, I um, was also from the same publisher, um, on political parties and co-authored with Matthew Kerbel. Um, and it's entitled American Political Parties, Why They Formed, How They Function and Where They're Headed. So again, could not be more on the money. Um, and many others too, which we may come to in a moment, one on the line, particularly interested in uh, the, the title of is what happened to the Republican Party. Um, so that might be a little um, part of our conversation shortly. But right now, if we move on to the actual topics of the day, um, and I guess we might start with the Georgia runoff, if that's okay for everybody. Should we just maybe start with some reflections there? And um, I suppose my first question, uh, John, might be, you know, what, what, why did such a flawed Republican candidate actually do so well? circumstances yeah well first thank you so much for the invite for uh, to be here with you all today i really appreciate it and i look forward to the discussion um i think that uh, our politics in the united states now is uh, very very tribal very tribal and i think what's what's happened is that you have this uh, coalesce uh, coalescing basically around the party label. I think that it's um, uh, it, it's it's now a uh, standard practice where Republican candidates get 90 plus percent of the Republican vote. Democratic candidates get 90 odd percent of the Republican uh, vote. Uh, and so even a flawed candidate like Herschel Walker, and he was a very flawed candidate, uh, again, uh, did well with these base Republican uh, voters. I also think that um, one of the reasons that he did well, he did have a couple things uh, going for him, a few things. Uh, Biden's unpopularity in the state uh, and also uh, the cultural issues. The fact of the matter is that when it came to gender issues, transgender issues, which he made a uh, a feature of his campaign ads, uh, his overwhelming support in rural Georgia. Uh, you know, this again points to the fact that Georgia is uh, is a uh, was a red state that's now kind of a pink one with blue hues. Um, and again, when you're running for the U.S. Senate, it seems to me that 
the party label matters even more because it deals with control. Now, control wasn't an issue in the runoff. Democrats had already secured the 50 votes. But it still, I think, mattered to Republican voters that there be one more check on Joe Biden, one more no vote on whatever Biden wanted. Uh, And I think they saw Herschel Walker as a reliable no vote that, uh, to be to be perfectly blunt, he would do as he's told. So, John, do you think, I mean, I guess the one thing, looking at the Georgia results overall, though, there were a number of statewide races, and this was the only one the Democrats won. Um, so I guess it does say that candidate quality still has some impact, particularly if you look at the differential in terms of how well Kemp ran against Walker, in, uh, ran, how, how well Kemp ran against Stacey Abrams. And, right, um, right. So, no. Uh, no, candidate quality still matters. It's it's uh, it's too simplistic to say it's all Democrats, it's all Republicans. There are still independent voters out there who will vote for a candidate that uh, uh, or not vote for a candidate whose quality they deem to be poor. A good example of that was in Georgia with the Republican lieutenant governor, uh, Jeff Duncan, who stood in line for over an hour walked into the voting booth and the runoff and then walked out because he couldn't bring himself to vote for Warnock and he couldn't bring himself to uh, to vote for Walker. Uh, so th- there certainly were voters uh, like that. And we saw that also in the initial uh, election where you had Kemp and Warnock voters um, without without question. I think I think there's also a couple of other things that happened in the runoff. First, uh, Warnock ran a better campaign uh, in the uh, in the initial campaign, and particularly with the debate with Walker, he did not take it to Walker. Um, he let Walker basically uh, hold the floor in a way that surprised a lot of people in terms of how well Walker did in that debate. Um, and what happened afterwards is that he made uh, he made a character an issue in that uh, in that election, uh, and he made Walker's qualifications an issue to devastating effect by using Walker's own words against him. It's the only time I can recall a focus group being part of a political ad. Uh, that that worked so devastatingly against the candidate who uttered the words the the group was listening to. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a. Yeah, that's interesting. Just thinking about Warnock for a moment, John. Um, mm-hmm. how, in terms of how he ran, he, he, there was no attempt by him to distance himself from Biden or from the Democratic Party, but he didn't really run as progressive. I don't think, or or. You know, he, he tried to sort of, he, he was, I think, the, one of their campaign strategists referred to giving a permission slip to Republicans to either not vote or, or you know, right. even to vote for him. Well, I think a couple of things. First, uh, Warnock said, I am Georgia. And I think that is very, very true. And part of that was running as a U.S. senator from Georgia looking out for the state. And one of the things that Warnock did effectively and will continue to do is to show up in rural areas that did not vote for him. 
what was interesting in the runoff was that Walker got what he needed in these rural communities, but Warnock did a little better than he did in the initial uh, in the initial uh, election. So I think that's partly true. But I also think Biden gave him an agenda to run on. Um, so, for example, the things in the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the prescription drug costs being reduced to $35 for seniors with diabetes that need insulin, the infrastructure bill, the Chips and Science Act. So while Warnock didn't necessarily mention Biden by name, uh, he ran on the Biden agenda that he helped to create. And that was true across the board, which I think in the longer term bodes pretty well for Biden. We can get into why I think that's the case. But uh, I do think that in his own way, Biden helped him. And certainly Barack Obama helped him because uh, Barack Obama certainly crystallized the character uh, issue uh, and uh, and Walker's uh, qualifications for the Senate in a very, very devastating way for uh, uh, for Walker. It was really super important. I think one of the things that I think Clodagh was sorry, to uh, was about why it was so important to get this 51st seat. But I think today's breaking news is, is re-emphasized there with, um, uh, I guess by the time people hear this, there may be a little bit more clarity around Kirsten Sinema's position and exactly what she means by uh, caucusing or being an independent. But John, have you any thoughts? And we were talking about this a little bit off air before we came on, but um, in terms of what her motivations are and, and whether she's got any viability as an independent? Or? Uh, so uh, let's start with, Kirsten Cinema is quirky. She is. She, she, she is. Uh, you know, one can understand why Joe Manchin uh, acts and votes the way he does because he's got a political constituency back home that is uh, very pro-Trump, without question, and is very much in danger in 2024 if he decides to seek another term. Manchin has candidates already lining up against him. Uh, what Cinema says is that uh, she will maintain her committee assignments, which means that to do that, she has to at least continue to affiliate with the Democrats. There's no guarantee that her committee assignments would remain the same if she decide, decided to affiliate with the Republicans. And the committee assignments are important to her. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, she's been with Biden mostly on the judicial appointments, which, of course, is very important, will be very important. Um, Arizonans are famously independent. But in my mind, there's a big but here. Politically, how does this impact her standing in the state and her future uh, prospects for a second Senate term? I think negatively. Uh, she's going to be primaried. She was always going to be primaried, primarily, I think, by Ruben Gallego, who has who already indicated that he wants to primary her, largely over her dissension from Bill Back Better and other things. Um, and, uh, and I don't know that she would survive a primary. That may have been part of the calculation. But then another part of that calculation is 
if she were to run as an independent in Arizona and in her statement, she makes no uh, uh, reference to seeking a, se a second a second term in the Senate. No reference. Uh, but if she were to run as an independent, how would that work in our tribal politics? It seems to me that Democrats would stick with the Democrat, whoever emerges from the primary. Republicans would stick with the Republican and she'd be out there basically by herself. How does that work? I don't know how that works, frankly. Yeah, and just to clarify, uh, Ruben Gay was a House member from Arizona, so you know he is in an institutional position as with you know some name recognition in the state, and would clearly be a formidable challenger for her. So. Mm, very much, and I think as well. I mean, I think that point from John is really interesting about like where 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 would she just be? You know, where would her sort of political home be? I mean, she I I saw um. Her, her her statement earlier said she she said she made the, she made the move to fight what she called a broken partisan system. So on one level, it's kind of you know the the registering as an independent is you know it maybe takes her uh, on paper at least out of the fray and it's a kind of a noble thing to do and she doesn't want to be part of all the toxicity anymore. But it could really be quite self defeating, couldn't it? I think so. And yeah, I also point to her colleague Mark Kelly as a Another interesting illustration of it, as we know, he ran as a Democrat. He is a Democrat. Um, but one of the things I think, and of course, he's uh, unique, I suppose, unto himself in terms of his own character and biography and uh, work with his uh, wife, um, Gabby Giffords. But I think that one of the things that's interesting also that Kelly never uh, campaigned with or advocated for Katie Hobbs, the new governor, uh, in uh, in 2022. They ran entirely separate campaigns. That would certainly have been an option for cinema. I'm not sure that it's an option uh, now. Um, uh, Mark Kelly is able to maintain his own uh independent standing or separate standing or rise above the party, so to speak, um, with the full party support behind him. And that leads to another question with cinema. What does the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee do uh, in 2024? What sort of institutional party support does she get? Um, and that's a very different uh, scenario from the two other independents, uh, Bernie Sanders and Angus King. Yeah, I guess it will depend to some extent how she actually behaves over the next two years, or at least the next year before there's a serious challenge to her uh, from the primary side. Yeah, so far not well, Alex. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's the bottom line. So far not well, because I, as we talked before, you know, she did not get on Air Force One to ride with Biden uh, when he was uh, uh, breaking uh, or cutting ribbons for uh, for the, uh, the technology centers that are going to be built in Arizona. And I suppose that was a sign right there of what was to come. Yeah, she's she's not going to write the book on how to win friends and influence people, I don't think so. No, I wonder, could, could we just could we just. To a slightly sideways question, John, John just uh, thinking about how, how this has played out, because I, I had planned to ask you that, you know, if Democrats control the Senate, um, why why did Georgia matter 
so much why was you know uh, there's so much attention on on december 6th and obviously some of the kind of the the, the, the textbook answers to that would be things like you know in case of a a vacancy or a party switch or a flip or whatever which is exactly what's happened now but just in sort, sort of um pragmatic terms i mean what does that minus one figure now mean for the democrats in the senate like is it going to be noticeable or is it just a little bit more anxiety inducing for people well it certainly is anxiety producing but we're not sure yet if it's actually minus one. Um, now, she never attend, uh, Senator Sinema never attends caucus meetings to begin with, or is a rare presence there. But if she's voting to organize the Senate with the Democrats, that is a, uh, that is a big deal. Because what, what 51 means is that uh, Democrats have a majority now on all Senate committees. Um, beforehand, uh, the membership was evenly split. It also allows those committees to issue subpoenas, uh, gives them much more authority to do that. Uh, that is certainly a, a powerful uh, instrument that the Democrats have lacked. Now, again, she is, seems to be saying that nothing has really changed, only my label has changed. But again, how this plays out is, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, so far, I think that it looks like it's still a 51-49 Senate, uh, simply with her declaration of independence, so to speak. But this is not years ago, there was Jim Jeffords, the Republican uh, from Vermont, who became an independent, but then he decided to caucus with the Democrats that then flipped the Senate majority for a brief period uh, in 2001. Um, this does not look like that. Um, now, she would certainly have that option. She could certainly do that at any moment in time. But thus far, as of this hour, four, about four hours after this uh, announcement, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Yeah, I think well, let's move on from Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> uh, and and, and we, let's not go down the rabbit hole of, 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 of uh, Joe Manchin either, which could occupy another hour of our time. John Early, you, you, you talked about uh, Raphael Warnock's victory as being used to boding well for Biden. Um, yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that? Do you, do you mean in terms of uh, a, 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 is a, you know his re-election prospects? Because uh, I, I, you know, I think we'd both like we'd all like to spend some time thinking about the if there is a serious legislative agenda. But just in terms of Biden's electoral prospects, first of all, just I guess we're obviously we're in a very speculative territory here. We're we assuming he's running again. Is that? I am absolutely confident he's running again. I have. No inside uh, information about that, but there's every indication that he is running again uh, with, and I would add importantly, uh, the first lady, Dr. Biden, uh, wanting him to run again. And we know that from the history there that she is the decider. Uh, in 2004, she was 
adamant that he not run. So I, I'm absolutely confident, and they are doing everything at this point that one would do to stand up a re-election campaign, both with the work of the Democratic National Committee, but also um, uh, also with uh, setting up a, a re-elect uh, campaign. So I expect that sometime in the spring of 23, uh, there will be an announcement. There's no need for any announcement uh, at this point. And I'm actually optimistic about his re-election prospects, unlike uh, others, because I think that the, the things that he has gotten done already in terms of chips and the Inflation Reduction Act and, and uh, infrastructure, all of that just comes into play now in 2023-24 in ways that they haven't come into play. I mean, so far, for example, just take one small, well, one big thing, is that uh, seniors that uh, paying $35 a month for insulin, that won't happen until next month, till January of 23. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, there are other aspects of the inflation of the Inflation Reduction Act that have not happened yet. Uh, the caps on the on prescription drugs for seniors, for example, the $2,000 out-of-pocket expense. Uh, the infrastructure bill. I mean, there are a lot more shovels to go into the ground uh, there. Um, and Biden could certainly spend much of 23, as he did the other day in Arizona, cutting ribbons. Um, I just think that uh, we're going to see more of what he's done come to uh, come to fruition uh, in the next uh, in the next two years. Now, Republicans also have their problems, which we can get into that. I also think uh, help uh, Biden's prospects. Yeah. Um, so it's a double edged sword there, basically. Yeah. I think we'll put a pity the Republicans side and come back to that in a few minutes. But Claudia, do you want to chase up on sort of the Democratic side of things a little? I guess yeah. I was just thinking about your your opportunity and and, and crisis, the, the 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 case for a second Biden term. So I mean, you 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 are on board with that idea, the the notion of him running again, and you know having, I suppose, like to, just to put it very bluntly, and this is no criticism, it's just a curiosity. Like what might a second term look like. I mean, he did get some big ticket items happening really right, quite right. impressively early in term one, as you say, they're rolling out with the shovels and the pills and all the rest of it, which, you know, could make for great sort of um, PR, to put it bluntly. But term two, what what, what would you envisage? So I think um, first I, I stand by what I wrote. Yeah. Um, so first uh, deal with the opportunity, because that's really what you're referencing. I think that he will focus, and I think we'll see this in the State of the Union and throughout, uh, focus on what did not happen that he wants to get done. Free community college, preschool, um, starting school for those three, four, and five-year-olds and getting them into school. Some form, at least, of the child care tax credit, which proved to be quite effective uh, and interestingly, Senator Romney uh, has a proposal dealing with this issue. There may be compromise that is going to be found there. The environment, it's to build on, uh, on the climate change 
proposals that he's made that have an enormous appeal uh, to voters and increasing appeal to voters and particularly uh, young voters. I can see that happening. I think the opportunities to appoint more federal judges, he'll have that opportunity as we know, at least for now, uh, in 23, 24, but there's clearly this opportunity to reshape the federal bench. I also think there's an opportunity to build uh, and strengthen our alliances. One of the things that, as we know this story from Biden himself, that at his first um, uh, uh, meeting with foreign leaders, um, he declared, America is back to which uh, Emmanuel Macron asked him, for how long? Uh, and I think that a, um, a re-elect uh, answers that question, that if he's successful in gaining a second term, it's going to help um, uh, uh, our, uh, strengthen uh, the U.S. role in the world, strengthen our alliances, give them more reassurance that America is back. Uh, so I think all of that uh, is uh, is enormously uh, helpful. And I actually think that his re-election would be very helpful to Republicans in an odd way. Because I think like as the 1980s uh, showed us, it took a repeated democratic losses to the for the party to figure out that they not only had a candidate problem, they had a party problem. And they needed to step back and think about how they were going to address those party problems. If they lose in 24, the presidency, whether it's Trump or somebody else, I think it, it allows them to sort of begin the process of stepping back. Um, right now, there's no indication that the Republicans actually are doing that. So I think there are a lot of lot of reasons why uh, a Biden reelect, and I think he's in a strong position. Uh, uh, incumbent presidents are very hard to defeat. And even Donald Trump in his weakened position in 2020 almost won against the candidate he feared the most. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's said, uh, Biden was always the candidate they feared the most, I think, you know, tracking that through the early stages of Trump's presidency. Just picking up, I think it's interesting what you say in terms of some of the legislation that they've already enacted actually beginning to be implemented and to make uh, an identifiable difference to voters, uh, particularly the infrastructure and uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which wasn't much to do with inflation, but it um, might have uh, uh, some uh, some impacts. Do you think there's any possibility, and actually you did mention the Romney child tax credit plan, and I think um, I agree there's possible room for compromise there, at least in the Senate. I, I guess, is, is do you think that you can peel off enough Republicans in the House for any legislative, significant <laughs> legislative... It's really going to be interesting in the House because you've got, I believe the number's right, 14 Republicans uh, that were elected from Biden districts. It's a very significant number. Uh, and I think that what one of the things that Biden has uh, done is to capture the mood of the voters in 2020. Uh, and I, I want to be writing about this uh, soon. 
uh, and uh, and right now, which is what do the voters want? They don't want gridlock. They don't want the partisan sniping. They're focused on getting things done. And I think that that is something that Biden has seized on. I went back, Alex, and I looked at the Jim Clyburn endorsement of Biden in 20, which was, as we know, very, very memorable. But I went back and looked at what Biden said after that endorsement. And uh, the exact quote is, what voters are looking for are results. Um, I think he hit the nail on the head there. And I think that's what they're still looking for. And it will be very perilous for uh, House Republicans not to offer uh, results. Um, And uh, yeah, so I think that that is a theme that Biden struck in 20 uh, and will strike again in a reelect campaign in 24. They want results. They want things to get done for them. Voters sometimes are selfish. And uh, yeah, and they they definitely want uh, they want to see real things happen that make a difference in their in their own lives. And as I said before, that hasn't quite gelled yet. The legislation's been passed, but now you have to implement it. And now we're at the stage of implementation. Biden just said, I conclude with this, said the other week, quote, we're just getting started. And what he meant by that was we're just getting started with the implementation of of these uh, groundbreaking pieces of legislation. I wonder just on that, like the idea that, you know, if 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 it's still more or less the economy stupid in terms of, you know, what what people prioritize in, in, in on Election Day. And if there are kind of economic challenges that are a bit beyond Biden in the sense that inflation is, you know, far beyond just a U.S. problem, the, the, the Ukraine situation, who knows how that's going to pan out. If there are things that he hasn't got that much control over Will he still be able to sort of successfully push that message of, you know, it's all good and it's all happening? And it, you're, to rephrase your question, is it still the economy stupid? Um, yeah, that. Carville's <laughs> famous maxim. And it kind of is and isn't. I think we saw that play out in 2022 where the economy really did matter to voters, but so did uh, uh, abortion. So did democracy. Um, and, to, and to my mind, you had all of these cross currents working uh, against uh, each other. And by the way, so did, again, uh, the, uh, the uh, Biden agenda, where Biden himself couldn't be directly helpful. But the agenda was helpful. So Warnock never ran away from that, nor did really anybody else for that matter. Uh, So again, I think that we'll see if we have these cross currents. No one knows where the economy is going. Uh, I just think that all the rules about the the economy and all the rest of it have sort of been upended by the pandemic. Uh, You know, so we've had these supply chain issues, but now they're easing somewhat. Ukraine could change things on a dime. 
In the United States, we've seen gasoline prices come down markedly, now lower than they were before the war in Ukraine. Um, but that could change also very, very quickly. Um, so there are a lot of uh, needles to thread there, but we've also got all of these other cross currents that are still out there. The courts, Donald Trump, uh, the uh, uh, you know, do we upend the Constitution? Uh, you know, uh, a Republican Party that still is uh, that's st- that, in my view, still remains Donald Trump's party. Oh, yeah. So many Sorry. things that work here. I mean, I think we certainly want to get back to that issue of, of Donald Trump and his continuing influence over the Republican Party. Just quickly before we do that, do you, do you, and you, you talked about the pressures that there might be on some Republican House members to at least cooperate to some extent. Do you think there's a, I say danger, that's a, there's a, the, 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 I mean, certainly the noises that, you know, Jim Jordan has been talking about, um, his uh, ambition right. of oversight of the right. administration. Right. Do you think there's a, a danger from the Republican perspective that they get sucked into too aggressive a posture in terms of the administration, you know, too much of Hunter Biden chat? Um, uh, and also, again, and, and in a very di- a different scenario, but related to the House Republican majority, that we end up in sort of endless debt ceiling fights, repeating the Obama right. review. Uh, the short answer to your question is absolutely yes. Um, there is a huge danger for the Republican Party by getting swept up in uh, wanting to impeach Joe Biden, for example, Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, you know, you can you can see how this can go awry, I think, very, very quickly in part because it relates back to what does the public want? They want results. Um, So I think there's a huge danger for them. Um, And also, I think there there's a there's another lesson here. I think one lesson Republicans drew when they had control of the House back in uh, uh, 2014-15, when they went after uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, over Benghazi and numerous hearings and so forth. And as I think McCarthy at the time said, well, we accomplished our purpose because we drove up Clinton's negative ratings and drove down her positive ones, thanks to the hearings that we did. Um, I don't think that that's going to be the case with Biden. Um, I think Biden is a very different um candidate and person and and so forth. I'm not sure that these sort of hearings, they, they drive they drive the passions of Republicans, but they're already quite passionate. I don't know that this particularly scores well with uh, with independents. And of course, it could help Biden with with Democrats, although he's already getting a bump among Democrats. He's not going to have a, any serious primary challenger. Um, so, uh, so I think they could go completely off the rails there. And if they do, then they endanger those Republicans who got elected from Biden, uh, districts who clearly want to, you know, do they want checks on uh, the administration? Yes. Are they okay with, with looking into Afghanistan? Sure. Um, 
you know, uh, are they okay with looking at how monies were spent uh, under the American Relief Plan? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, scrutinizing money for Ukraine? Okay. But not impeaching Joe Biden. And one of the trade-offs that McCarthy has had to make is he is giving Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, uh, among others, but particularly her, an outsized voice in the Republican Party. It's not that she will just have committee assignments uh, back, she will, but she's raising money hand over fist. She has a great deal of power now within the party, not because of seniority, obviously, not, uh, it is because of her presence on social media and her ability to raise large amounts of money. That's a big danger for them. Yeah. For any of our listeners who don't know Marjorie Taylor Green, just uh, go away and Google her. I think is the simplest answer. I'll, uh, I'll, otherwise, I'll end or up. Or don't. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, an extraordinary figure uh, in Republican Party politics. So, Claudia, do you want to you want to ask some questions about different voting groups and different parts? Um, yeah, I guess I, I I'm I'm just watching the time and I, I want us to kind of reflect a, a bit on, on 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 the Republican side of things because because it's crucial. There's, there's one thing John that, that I'm really quite interested in and it's in sort of, sort of take us to the the, the Republican uh, question in in one form or other but your your, your own writings on um, you know Biden and recently you, you wrote something relating to the Catholic bishops and that and I thought that was mm-hmm. really rather interesting in the sense that if if Biden is a Catholic and Pelosi is a Catholic, as, as they clearly are, um, are, the more progressive end of things, how I'm I'm curious to know how does a you know forward thinking Democrat or forward thinking Democrat Catholic, which is what I might term Biden as, how does he manage to keep more socially conservative Catholics? on board with his agenda was still not alienating younger voters who feel very passionately about things like trans rights, gay rights, all that stuff that, that, that is often tricky, you know, for the Catholic Church. And where where is that kind of positive tension right. in terms of not, you know, gaining one and losing the other? I'm just I'm just wonder about that. How, how does he manage it? Yeah, it's a very good question, Clota. Very, very good question. First, let me say that uh, what I'm about to say are my own views and not the views of uh, Catholic University. Um, I think it was very important for Biden back in 2020 to stress his Catholic identity, and I don't think there's anything false about it. It is who he is. It's very endemic to him. Um, At the same time, it's also, I think, very clear that uh, in 2020, you know, he did win just barely the Catholic vote, but he did win it. But almost immediately when he took office, there there was a hostility uh, from the bishops. I mean, it was a very, uh, uh, very uh, terse and uh, a statement that the Conference of Catholic Bishops issued on Inauguration Day that was far, in my view, from congratulatory, uh, and particularly citing abortion as the preeminent issue. And for months, the bishops 
uh, just debated this issue and they were, you know, became enormously controversial. It was not something that uh, that many Catholics supported, the idea of denying communion and so forth. And eventually, in my view, they punted on the question. Um, I, I'm not sure that uh, he has to win the socially conservative Catholics as much as do well enough with them. Um, the, um, of course, the uh, Hispanic voters are overwhelmingly uh, Catholic. There is a rising evangelical uh, population among Hispanics that is increasingly important. And we know that the Hispanic vote is just a very complicated vote. It's not, a, it's not something you can uh, characterize in a broad brush. But I do think that one of the things that certainly has helped him with, with Catholics is that, is that identity and almost, I would say, a kind of um, um, remote blessing from Pope Francis, uh, who has called him a good Catholic, quote unquote. I think what's interesting about all this is that the Catholic Church itself is divided. Uh, it's divided about where it should go, how, what's its place in, uh, in today's world. Do we, uh, as a church, grow our ranks or decide that smaller is better, that being more homogenous is better. Um, uh, and, and that's a real division within the church. And again, it's something where the American Catholic Church, uh, I think, in my view at least, has separated itself from Rome. I mean, I do think that there is tension between uh, the American Church and uh, and Pope uh, and Pope Francis, that Francis himself has explicitly alluded to on various occasions. Uh, but again, I think it's uh, it's part of who Biden is, and it's part of his story. Absolutely. No, that's absolutely fascinating. I, I think this that, that that's there's a whole other podcast episode there. Oh, so thank you for those those reflections. I, I guess, Alex, maybe we've got about five minutes left. Should, should we? Um, I guess Donald Trump, yeah. he, he kind of has to he has to come in there somewhere, doesn't he? And I suppose my my, my question, and then I'll hand over to Alex. Um, my question is just basically, you know, is is it is it going to be Biden Trump in 2024? Is that what you're thinking, John? Yes, I am thinking that. I I actually am working on a column now, I'll publish next week, which I've titled, Is This D uh, Donald Trump's Joe McCarthy Moment? Uh, you may remember that, of course, mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, McCarthy had a great deal of power within the Republican Party in the early 1950s, but lost uh, uh, Republican support when he went after the United States uh, Army saying that it harbored co uh, communist and then was censured uh, by the United States Senate uh, that year. Uh, I don't think that this is Donald Trump's uh, Joe McCarthy moment. Uh, Donald, it, it, the Republican Party remains Donald Trump's uh, party. I think the, uh, the leadership of the party, people like Mitch McConnell and so forth, would, would be happy to be rid of Donald Trump and they had their chance to do that. But Donald Trump 
command still a tremendous loyalty among the Republican base. And I personally think that that loyalty will increase um, if and when he is indicted. Because what Trump's argument, and he's already stated this explicitly, remember with what you see with Donald Trump is what you get. It's all out there on the table. Trump has said, they're going after me so I can't work for you. They're really not going after me. They're going after you and what you stand for. And they're trying to keep me, <coughs> excuse me, out of the presidency to keep me from working for you. He's going to explicitly make that argument. And I think that has some resonance, some powerful resonance within the, within the Republican base. Also, uh, in terms of the Republican Party and its 2024 presidential rules, uh, the Republicans have a winner-take-all system. You win the primary, you get all the delegates. And the field, to me, looks at the moment that it's uh, fractured. You might have DeSantis out there. Uh, we'll see if he makes the leap or not. You've got Larry Hogan, the now soon-to-be ex-governor of Maryland, making noises about running. Asa Hutchinson's making noises about running. So is Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. You could have a multi-candidate field, all of which helps uh, Trump. Uh, so I still think it's Trump's party. And the other thing I, I've thought of, uh, even if Donald Trump is not the nominee, uh, the Republican Party is the party of Trumpism. Uh, he has put his stamp. The, the problem from Donald Trump's point of view is he cannot imagine a, uh, a Republican Party that is, uh, that is Trumpist without him. Yeah, I mean, Trumpism without Trump is a thing. I, I agree with you there, John. I think it's a, there's a sense that it is only, he sees it as only being him, but I think there is a, there's a strand now Republican Party thought, which is, is, you know, we can identify as Trumpism. And that actually ties in, I think, with the, the book you engage with. And I, because I, I guess I'll, I'll let you speak for yourself, obviously, but I think one of the questions which has been asked, um, with the emergence of Trump is the extent to which Trump was a, um, a logical progression for the Republican Party, you know, at least identifiable from the Newt Gingrich era onwards, at least, or whether he was a, um, a, a, a phenomenon of himself, so to speak. He was a, um, I, I, I think your, 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 your view is that there's, elements of Trumpism, if not exactly his ideological, the way in which he's changed Republican thinking on issues around trade and some mm -hmm. specifics, mm -hmm. but the sort of conspiratorial authoritarian tendencies have been there for some time now. Oh yeah, definitely. So uh, let me try to take this basically in two parts. One is, is that uh, Trump filled the void left by uh, Ronald Reagan. It's look, um, uh, we're 42 years after Reagan's 1980 election. So at some point, of course, there was going to be a void there. Reagan had a, put a powerful stamp on the Republican Party and the conservative movement and revitalized it. 
Um, and for a long time, Republicans were consumed by a question, what would, what would Reagan do? Well, that's no longer a relevant question. It's the same thing that happened to the Democrats after FDR and the New Deal. These things have their life and then they kind of run out. What Trump did was to fill the void. Now, I think he filled the void that was built in part by the Tea Party because the Tea Party was not simply angry about uh, excessive government spending or waste or whatever. They were angry about Barack Obama. And they were angry, I think, about what they saw as the transformation of the country. Uh, a, a United States that's much more racially diverse, where whites are becoming a minority. And uh, and one of the things I thought that's very interesting, and I went back and looked at this, and your listeners can do this, is to look at the uh, work of Richard uh, Hofstetter. Not, uh, not on the paranoid style, which is his very famous article about Barry Goldwater, but an earlier piece he wrote in the 1950s about the pseudo-conservatives, where he argued that the pseudo-conservatives weren't uh, really concerned about economics per se. They were concerned about their loss of status in society. And one can see that particularly among white, non-college educated, more rural voters and downscale industries living in the dollar economy. It was this loss of status uh, and political power in the sense that the country uh, and the American dream was already dead. That's what Trump appealed to. Um, now, Trump was very smart in recognizing that audience, uh, but that audience was there. Uh, someone else might have captured it. Uh, he did. Uh, and I think that accounts for this enormous transformation within the party that is very different from what the party leadership envisioned after Mitt Romney's loss in 2012. That in its growth and opportunity project, they would, they would begin to modify their stances on immigration. Uh, and so forth, and recognized that there were new realities out there, and Trump said absolutely not. And uh, yeah, so all of that, uh, all of that is still the base of the Republican Party. If the Republicans nom nominate somebody else, they're still going to have a hardline stand on immigration. They're still going to take a tough stance on these cultural uh, issues. <laughs> Uh, they're still going to want tariffs and not the free trade party of Ronald Reagan, I think. I think all of that's there. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, there's, a, there's a whole other podcast, isn't there? Definitely. I've got so many questions, but it's just a fantastic conversation, John. Thanks so much for that. Thank you so much, John. And I would just say, you know, genuinely, just to, to, to go back to your um, impending publication, The Republican Party, Donald Trump and the Rise of Authoritarianism. Please come back and talk to us about that near the time. We would be looking forward to reading it and, and talking with you about it. But for now, if we can just say thank you so much, Professor John White from Catholic University in Washington, D.C. It has been a pleasure, as we knew it would be. Um, and yeah, we will be back next month with the uh, uh, January exciting installment. So please do rate us on whatever platform that you uh, listen to. It could be uh, Anchor, Spotify, um, Apple or other 
Okay, thank you. Yes, thanks very much indeed. And uh, if you've enjoyed this, tell your friends. If not, tell your enemies. A listener's a listener from our point of view. So uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. This is episode three of our U.S. politics podcast. It's called A Chicken in Every Pot. Uh, you can find it on Anchor and elsewhere. We'll be madly tweeting uh, after this once the session is done and Alex has worked his uh, technological magic. Um, so I'm Cloda Harrington. I've been teaching U.S. politics for 20 years uh, and I've recently moved to University College Cork after many happy years spent at the Montreux University in Leicester. And my co-host... Hi, I'm Alex, Alex Borden from the University of Leicester, though opinions are all my own. Uh, those of you who know me well will know that the words technology and magic should never appear in the same sentence with my name, and, um, but hopefully we'll get this out um, as soon as we can. So it's great to welcome uh, Scott and Liam today. Claude, do you want to? So our two esteemed guests this afternoon uh, are Liam Kennedy, who's Professor of American Studies and Director at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. So welcome, Liam, and thank you for joining us uh, alongside him. We have his uh, now colleague, actually, Scott Lucas, uh, who is uh, Emeritus Professor um, at the University of Birmingham and Working Professor at um, the Clinton Institute at UCD. So welcome both. Uh, delighted to have you. Um, as is the way with our guests, uh, the CVs are very, very long, too long to go into here. So just a couple of very quick uh, uh, reference points here for anyone who um, might want to pick up on these. Um, some latest uh, projects coming from our guests. We have a spectacular destruction, Trump and America, coming from Scott. So when that comes out further down the line, Scott, I hope you come back and, and, and share your, your thoughts with us. And also coming from the Clinton Institute more broadly um, is uh, a project with the DC think tank, the Bertelsmann Foundation, on US-Ireland relations. So lots of interesting and exciting things going on there. And of course, uh, I would always direct you to um, Scott's EA Worldview, which uh, you can follow on Twitter. So it's at EA underscore Worldview uh, for those of you who are interested. So I guess let's make a start. We've got about 45 minutes to talk about a lot, really a lot of things. So what we might do is just kind of get things rolling with some thoughts about what's been in the, the headlines this week. Um, Alex, shall I hand that over to you? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Claude, and as a yeah, well, big welcome to, to Scott and Liam. I think um, those of you who've listened to the first two podcasts, the concentration in those was on U.S. domestic affairs and sort of aftermath of the midterm uh, elections. Uh, today, we're going to sort of think about things more in an international environment, uh, concentrating on the U.S.'s role in world affairs. But uh, it would seem uh, strange not to start um, we're thinking about latest developments in the war in Ukraine and uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the latest developments with regards, I guess what would be seen as the increase in sort of engagement from uh, the United States and Europe with uh, new tanks uh, being authorised to um, be used by the Ukrainian forces. Um, uh, we could we could talk about the mechanics of tanks a little bit. That would be outside my ballpark. But just just Scott and uh, Liam, um, Scott, maybe you want to take it away first, just in terms of how the diplomatic significance. Before we get to sort of any potential military significance, where do you think the diplomatic significance of 
of the moves this week has been. And it does seem the Germans were waiting for, for Biden to jump before they would uh, sort of release their, their equipment. Uh, yeah, it's a great question, Alex Clodin. Thank you so much for having the chance to come back and just talk this through with you because we live in momentous times. I'll say, first of all, that I think the, the decision to send the tanks, and we can talk about this in, in a bit, if we, is a game changer on the military front. Um, I think we're already on the way to the defeat of Vladimir Putin's invasion. Um, it will be an, over the course of months, not over the course of weeks. But I think the tanks are an important military marker in terms of both preventing against a further Russian uh, offensive uh, with their rather strained capabilities, but then also enabling the Ukrainians to liberate territory that was seized last year and possibly even liberate territory that Russians have held since 2014. But you asked me about the diplomatic and political front, and it's part of a continuing game changer as well. The specific story here is, is that while uh, there was a lot of criticism of Germany over indecision, over hesitation, and finally confirming the Leopard 2 tanks, you could really see this as part of a process where there were maneuvers going on for months, and especially in recent weeks, um, as the U.S., Germany, other European powers, other members of the international coalition realize this is a longer-term war. And that effort to coordinate this, to calibrate this, uh, brought in a whole number of actors, even before you get to the U.S. and Germany. So, for example, you may have noticed that Poland said, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we'll provide German-made Leopard tanks. We just need Berlin's permission. So they were like the advanced guard that came out and said that. And in fact, Finland said it as well. Um, and I just emphasize that because we're quite right to focus on the U.S., quite right to rightly focus on Germany, but the other players are important in what is now, and this is why it's a game changer, a new approach to multilateralism and a new approach to cooperation. The U.K. followed, um, you might remember, uh, a couple of weeks ago by committing challenger tanks, just 14, but it was important that they made that commitment. The Americans thought that the Germans at that point would have enough to go ahead and make the move. Um, the Americans didn't want to make the decision to commit the Abrams tanks. The Pentagon was against it because the logistics are very difficult. In other words, from a military point of view, the Abrams can't get out there for months. But when the Germans said, no, we need a U.S. commitment, that's when the decision was made, which was more of a political, not a military decision, to announce that the Abrams were going. And then once that happened, you saw that Schultz went before the German parliament and said, we will supply our own tanks. But that's only 14. The key is we're not we're going to give permission for what are going to be hundreds of tanks coming from other countries. And just to give you a quick example of that, Spain alone has said they're ready to excuse me. Spain alone has said they're ready to deliver 53 tanks, um, you know, 20, which are ready now, 33 to be refurbished. Uh, the Finns have said they're ready to deliver tanks. The Poles have said they'll deliver 14 German tanks and 60 of their own. There are now 12 countries that have either committed to delivering tanks or on the verge of doing so. And so very quickly, the question then opens up, will jet fighters be next? Now, I think we're months away from that, but you're going to see the diplomatic process begin over if Putin does not end this, if he does not step back and accept that he cannot win. Do we ratchet this up really to enable the Ukraine not to attack Russia, not to go into Russia? Biden is right about that, but potentially to liberate 
those areas that they lost in 2014, including Crimea. And that's where the rubber's going to hit the road as to whether the U.S.-European alliance is going to support Ukraine in trying to regain Crimea. But I'll just say in terms of the broad question, just double back. February 24th, 2022 will be one of those catalytic moments in history where Vladimir Putin gambled that he could effectively break the rules of the international order that had been strained, that might be flawed, but were there since the 1940s. He gambled he could break the U.S. and Europe, and it backfired. What he actually did was cut through a lot of white noise about whether the U.S. should lead, Europe should follow, whether the U.S. should go and become an offshore balancing power. He cut through all that rigmarole and tension and all the chaos of the Trump years. And out of necessity, he brought the U.S. and Europe back together and, of course, again, other countries, international coalition, in terms of reestablishing what it means in a crisis situation to bolster a country which is under attack. Um, how far this goes beyond the liberation of Ukrainian territory, that's for the next generation. But we're in a far different place right now talking about the U.S. and Europe than we were just over a year ago. Lee, would you agree with, with Scott on all of that? Is there anything you'd want to add to that? Uh, I, I, I rarely agree with Scott on everything he says, but I'm pretty close to it on this one. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good read. Uh, I think he's right. There's a complex diplomatic dance going on. We're only seeing part of that. Um, he's absolutely right there, for example, to bring in Poland, which I think are a very interesting actor in this regard. Um, although I would add to that that I think there's, there's quite a bit of grandstanding going on with Polish leadership on this uh, when some very critical questions could be asked about that country in other ways, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there's different ways you sort of, sort of spin this around. But I think that, um, as, as, as Scott said, this moment when uh, Germany says yes to these tanks going um, is a very significant one, not just militarily. I think it's significant diplomatically, it's significant politically. We shouldn't underestimate the hesitation by the Germans. Some would see that as itself strategic, I'm sure. But I think that there are, you know, there's a history there. There's domestic doubts there. There's domestic unease. I think they were always going to say yes, but they somewhat look better domestically by taking their time doing it, if that makes sense. So there's different ways you can come at this question of the tanks, I, I, I think, um, in terms of their significance. Um, and add into that that the U.S. Uh, uh, also gains, of course, from Germany stepping up because, you know, one of the weaker flanks that the U.S. has in terms of its support for NATO is the argument that, of course, Trump made loudly, but others have made too, and Republicans continue to, which is that Europe simply does not do enough in and of itself. So another way of sort of looking at that is that we might be another step toward that big question of what happens when this war finishes in terms of European security. You know, is this a war that we will look back to historically? Is this a moment that we look back to and say things fundamentally changed and the potential for a European alliance to uphold deterrence and defense on its own terms without necessarily relying on the full force of U.S. power. I'm not sure we're there yet, but that, that, that question gets more and more interesting. Yeah, no, I, we're getting there. I just had just a couple of little notes which run off to the side and watching this, which is interesting. First of all, um, Liam's absolutely right that for domestic reasons, for reasons of German political culture, there was a lot of, of agonizing over the decision on tanks, and there will be over jet fighters as well, if we can mm -hmm. get to that point. Uh, but it was interesting to me that, that one of the key voices that came out to push Germany to make the commitment on tanks is, uh, is the foreign minister, Annalena Baerbach, because she's a Green Party. 
Mm. You know, this is not like hard right wing European Cold War Party. This was the Green Party. And for her to step up and make the lead on why it was necessary to defend Ukraine, when a lot of the so-called left in the U.S. and Europe has frankly gone tanky, and I will use that phrase knowing what it means, uh, and carries water for Putin, that's interesting. The second thing is, is that question that Liam talks about the new Europe and how it evolves. You know, there's going to be a lot of, of paper expended on a division between Western and Eastern Europe, whether the, the locus of power is shifting away from France, away from Germany to the east. I think a lot of that is a little bit overblown. I think what's more interesting is, is what Liam alluded to in terms of uh, rogue actors in a couple of ways. One is rogue actors in terms of, you know, the global approach as well as the regional approach is Hungary, is Viktor Orban, right, who effectively is a Putin ally, but within the EU. And the second is, is how this plays off with domestic politics. And Liam's quite right that part of the reason why the polls have stepped up so firmly, unlike Hungary, which is continuing to almost, in fact, carry water for Putin inside the EU, Poland stepped forward to be the leader in the EU on this in part because it was under a great deal of fire over its domestic policies. Uh, the corrupt, the the manipulation of the judicial system, um, issues over women's rights, including abortion. And so Poland comes off, as Liam talks about, becoming the good guy out of this. Now, how much do domestic issues undermine that sense of European unity? We'll see. But at the very least, I'll put this marker on the table. If Vladimir Putin had not invaded Ukraine, Ukraine would not have become a member of NATO, point blank. It wasn't going to happen. Ukraine would not have become a member of the EU. What Putin has probably done is brought Ukraine eventually into the EU and into a relationship with NATO. And importantly, don't forget this, he's brought Finland and Sweden into NATO as well once you overcome the grandstanding of President Turkey. Uh, the idea that Finland and Sweden could be part of a realigned European security bloc, who could have projected that at the end of 2021? Yeah, I, I want, we want to. I'd like to maybe get back to the question of, of, of apologies for Putin. I think Claudia wants to step in and just, just, just uh, there's so much there. I mean, there, there's yeah. just ten podcasts there in the past ten minutes. But <laughs> just, just one thing coming out of that, just kind of thinking about the the strengthening of the Western alliance and how different things are now, even to you know a year ago, um, in terms of of um, evolution. But I'm just thinking about more, maybe more domestically in the U.S., you know, that the, the, there's a lot of uh, grand, symbolic and substantial gestures coming from the Biden administration in relation to Ukraine. What yeah. about um, sort of congressional opponents? I wonder, can he kind of can he can knit it all together and keep people with him? Or is there going to be some kind of pushback, do we think, on, in, in that regard? I think that's a really great question. I was concerned with the um, the uh, the midterms that a you know Republican-led uh, House would um, you know really swing things um, against the Biden approach on on um, on Ukraine. I, I'm not really seeing that. What we're seeing, I think, instead are a handful of Republican critics. Some of them high-profile because they're very noisy. Um, but people who are already generally anti-interventionists, I'm thinking of people, senators like Josh Hawley, Rand Paul, um, J.D. Vance, uh, who's on record of saying, quote, I don't care about Ukraine. But and there's others on the other side are even arguing for a tougher stance. So you've got two stripes of Republicans coming at this who are trying to critique what Biden is doing. But I'm not seeing them getting a terrific purchase. And um, uh, although this is not a fully bipartisan issue, 
it's 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 holding up, I think, reasonably well. Um, I think also, of course, you know, there's a lot of tests coming down the line. The longer this goes on, the more tests you'll see. And certainly, you know, it rebites back into, um, you know, the energy issues and recession in the U.S. And then you get into the election. We could be looking at a very different discussion, you know, even six or 12 months from now. One of the things I did notice though, just in passing uh, recent weeks on this, um, it's, it's, it's relevant, I think, is that I, whenever we saw the, the sort of the hot rhetoric from Biden's team around, uh, you know, the sport from Ukraine a year ago or nearly a year ago. Um, much of that was framing this conflict as the U.S. has to step up, step up to defend democracy. Um, it fitted into that rhetoric that they were using at that time of, you know, we need to see the world through the lens of, you know, the Democrats are over here and the autocrats are over there. And the Biden, you know, team talked a lot about that and a democratic summit and uh, so on and so forth. But recently, I've got the impression they're not using that language around the framing of the war in Ukraine anymore. They tend to be talking about a um, the need to defend national and territorial sovereignty. Uh, much more realist discourse, which I, I think is an interesting switch going on there. So there's calibrations um, about how the U.S. is framing this conflict, which is very much, of course, uh, playing to domestic politics and interests. Yeah, I, I think that's generally right. I think the when you talk about the Republicans, first of all, um, there are some squeaky wheels that get a bit of grease, but there's not really a coherence about what you talk about it. I mean, Rand Paul, again, is coming out of the libertarian mm. legacy of his father uh, and the Libertarian Institute, which is very close to Moscow. And let's just put that on record. I mean, those boys uh, have on several counts have basically covered for Putin. When you talk about Josh Hawley, he's just trying to make his name in terms of trying to be an, you know, an aspirant, as he did on January the 6th, before it all went wrong. Uh, you know, you get some other senators or you get some other representatives. And indeed, Kevin McCarthy, probably the most prominent when he said just before the election, there's no blank check. That was a bit of neo-isolation posturing, in part because Tucker Carlson is one of the most influential and pernicious people in the United States, even if he's not a politician, but he's a Fox TV hack was doing night after night, was running this whole thing of why are we supporting Ukraine? Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think there's a coherence in terms of an alternative foreign policy approach that's coming out there. And I think where the alternative foreign policy approach, which is coming out, which would challenge Biden, which are the so-called realists, um, and I'm talking now coming out of public intellectuals, academics, and we can talk about Mr. Mearsheimer if you wish. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think, you know, as, as loudly as they might be within the academic community and they get a play in the New Yorker and so on, I, I don't think they're going to overturn what Biden has done, because I'm going to give you this. Does it work? If Ukraine had fallen to the Russians quickly last spring, if Putin had succeeded in getting into Kiev, getting rid of the Zelensky government, killing Zelensky, and installing a puppet, then there's trouble for everyone. If the Russians had been able to continue the advances in the East last summer, then there's trouble for everyone. But once Ukraine began this last autumn, then you appear vindicated. And again, if the tank decision leads to Ukraine defending itself and advancing further, then it looks vindicated. And in terms of vindication, this has been achieved while inflation is going down in the U.S. It's been achieved while gas prices are going down. So the whole rhetoric from a few months ago that by supporting Ukraine, we would break our energy systems in Europe and in the U.S., something Putin was counting on, that has failed as well. 
it's not a guarantee. Things could go wrong in Ukraine. I don't think they will. They could go badly wrong. But right now, nothing succeeds like partial success. Yeah, or as Bob Dylan says, nothing succeeds like failure, and failure is no success at all. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in the sense that the Tucker Carlson wing's not grown in strength you know, uh, over over the, the last few months. At least I don't. I must have not kept track with Tucker. Is still spouting the same stuff as he was in the early stages, but it's um, yeah. I, I, I think when, you know, do, I think there were some of the shenanigans when McCarthy's speakership uh, was up in the air. That the the, the 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 some of the, the, the you know there was some chatter that uh, uh, one of the things that some of the people were pushing for a little bit was 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 perhaps a more limited. Aid to Ukraine, but I think, as you say, that seems to have died down a little bit. But I, I, do, well, you mentioned Mearsheimer. Um, now let's let's talk about, or maybe not just specifically Mearsheimer. I, I assume he would claim that he's not an apologist for Russia. He's just a, you know, he's, that's his explanation of um, of what's happened. But going back to I think to to to, to what uh, both Scott and Liam were saying earlier was that um, this, from Putin's point of view, if if there was any uh, genuine, uh, you know, if you give me a shine, uh, and I'm not particularly disposed to give him any credit, but if you wanted to give some credit to his argument that, that, that uh, Putin was acting from sort of as a, as a backlash against NATO encroachment and, 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 and Western encroachment, then that really does seem to have backfired in the case of Finland and Sweden. And, and I think you both were saying that the, 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 the increasing the likelihood, certainly, I think, of Ukraine <coughs> looking to, towards the EU for, uh, for a more engaged relationship. But just, what about the sort of, I don't want to get in the weeds of academic life too much, but what about those who've, who've if not exactly apologised for, for Russia uh, and, and, and Putin's actions, but those who've who've sought almost sought to justify it, if that makes uh, makes sense. I, I think realism is um, in the air again. I think that you know you don't have to sort of pick up on Mearsheimer, depending on your opinions. And I mean, Mearsheimer will Mearsheim. That's going to happen. Um, but there's something of a realist revival in the U.S., I think, and there has been for a few years now. This is just part of it, surely. Um, they've been pointing to ideological overstretch with the war on terror for some time, and it's given them a voice. I think the backlash against globalization also plays into their rhetoric, um, because, of course, what you see there is a, is, a, is a kind of collective questioning of a liberal world order, a rules-based order, things that these guys don't believe in in the first place, more or less. Um, so they think their moment has come. There's a little bit of crowing maybe even in some of this when you read it, I think, certainly in a headline form. Um, it's not to say they don't have things of value to put forward. I mean, they are warning about the potential for escalation in the war in Ukraine. I mean, there is potential for escalation. That's, that's a warning that you know we all, we all need to heed. But I think there's a broader moment here in a way. And partly I was referring to that with that sort of dialing back on democracy rhetoric by the Biden team. Um, that they led with when they came in, you know, two years ago. And I think that what they're recognizing is that that, uh, that language of a rules-based liberal world order, you know, is starting to sound very, very rusty. Um, it doesn't seem to suit the world we're moving into. The realists believe that they have rhetorical ownership of the world that's emerging. We're back to balance of power. We're back to dog-eat-dog. -dog. I don't buy that either, but I think we're at a moment of change, as Scott was saying. Um, and that, 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 that's what makes it interesting to look at how the war in Ukraine is such an incredible catalyst for all of this. I wanted just to... Go ahead, Claudia. 
just to, to, to follow up on that for, for, for a moment, um, I wondered about the, there's a kind of a, 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 a slightly alternative or maybe more constructive narrative um, as, you know, the idea of 2022 in particular being a year of redemption. That's the term that, 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 that I came across recently. Um, it was actually from uh, Stephen Wertheim at the, the Carnegie Endowment. Um, but talking about the national security establishment and having kind of, you know, not not quite um, congratulating anybody, but just that, it, you know, considering that 2021 wasn't the best year for U.S. foreign policy and ending, you know, fairly catastrophically with, with the um, withdrawal from <laughs> Afghanistan. Mm. Is there some kind of redemption in 2022 in terms of uh, acting up at a time of crisis and, and stepping in and, and, and kind of delivering in, in, in every sense, diplomatically, politically, militarily. Can, can we say that or, or not so much? Right. I'm going to load up my pistols and fire about realism <laughs> and redemption. First of all, when it comes to Ukraine, we call it realism process, we're not talking about realism. We are talking amongst many of the people who have been commenting about Ukraine about what is a visceral, knee-jerk, U.S.-centric diatribe, which erases the people on the ground. Now, that's kind of loaded, isn't it? So let me explain what I'm talking about. I'll use Mearsheimer as an example. John Mearsheimer has been going on since 2014 how everything is the fault of the U.S. and NATO. He said in 2014, oh, you know, when Putin took Crimea, when he annexed it, in other words, when he seized part of a neighboring country, when he sent Russian military forces into eastern Ukraine to seize part of the Donbass, when Russian forces shot down a Malaysia, or when Russia's supply forces shot down a Malaysian jetliner and killed almost 200 people, he said it's all the U.S. fault of U.S. and NATO. When Nearsheimer came out, I see no knowledge of the local facts when Nearsheimer says that. He puts out lines that are coming out in, from Russia, which effectively are saying that the Maidan revolution was part of the U.S. and NATO trying to encroach on Russia. Now, it wasn't. It was Ukrainians that were rising up against President Yanukovych. You may disagree with them doing that, but it was Ukrainians doing that. Now, Mearsheimer doesn't see that. Mearsheimer doesn't really have that much expertise on Ukraine and Russia. Let's put that out there. In 2022, as soon as the invasion takes place, Mearsheimer comes out and says, it's the U.S. and NATO that caused this. Now, anyone who is a Ukrainian or Russian expert, if you want to go to them, talk to them about what caused this. And they'll tell you about the local considerations about the buildup to that invasion. And it wasn't about NATO encroaching on Russia. That was the excuse that was given. And I'll give you a very practical example, if you don't mind, because, you know, this is pretty heavy charge. I make it. So I wanted to make sure I had it nailed down. In November... Mearsheimer was interviewed by the New Yorker, and he doubled down on this, right? He said, Vladimir Putin has no imperial ambitions. There's no imperial ambitions. Russia does not want to take over, does not want to conquer Ukraine, right? And he referred, and they asked him, they said, well, look, in July 2021, Vladimir Putin wrote this long essay, which effectively said Ukraine is part of greater Russia. And Mearsheimer said, oh, no, 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 no. He, he, he said he respected Ukrainian nationalism and sovereignty. He did. That's absolutely preposterous. What Putin said 
in this long historical diatribe is that Ukrainian nationalism was a concoction. That's Putin's words. It was a concoction. It was at the same time that Putin put out that letter, by the way, that the planning began for the attack on Kiev to infiltrate it and to take it over. Let me give you one postscript to that New Yorker interview. John Mearsheimer gave that interview just after he came back from Hungary, where he guessed, guess who he met in Hungary? President Viktor Orban. The Hungarians immediately come out and say, here's this eminent American political scientist, and he's, he, he, he has shown how the liberals, whatever they are, are wrong about Ukraine. Mearsheimer is asked about that in the New Yorker article. You know, haven't you effectively propped up Orban? And so he won't talk about it. Oh, I, I won't talk about it. I won't talk about it. There are others beyond Mirsham. There is the Orwellian named uh, responsible statecraft, mm. which is the output that comes from the Quincy Institute, yeah. whose organizing thought seems to be that whatever happens in the world, whether it's Iran, whether it's Syria, whether it's the wider Middle East, whether it's Latin America, you start with U.S. intervention. That's the cause. Here's a newsflash. Not everything that happens in those countries is because of the U.S. So what is being called realism in the U.S., including occasionally Henry Kissinger popping up because somehow he must be like 192 <laughs> still comes up. It's like this U.S. centric, U.S. first approach masked as realism, which can go one of two ways. It can either go the way that it did in the early 21st century with the Iraq war, or it can go reflexive and say the U.S. shouldn't be involved anywhere. And uh, I'm a bit passionate about it because you know what? This causes deaths. This causes killing. Because when you carry water and say that the U.S. and NATO are responsible for what happened in Ukraine, guess what gets alighted? All those Ukrainian civilians that have been killed by bombing, by shelling, by war crimes, and they are war crimes. And so, yeah, I think realism is going to have to have a series of accountability about that, as well as in the wider sense that Leon points to, which is at the same time, the idea of democracy promotion, at least the way that Biden was putting it, has also been exposed very quickly when you talk about how the Saudis, for example, turned this on Biden, mm. and by the way, the Egyptians, another interesting case, and what else democracy promotion now receives, which explains why the Biden folks, probably quite rightly, reframe Ukraine in terms of sovereignty, yeah. because at least that's a starting point to build your alliances. Yeah. Sorry, rant over. <laughs> it, it, it's a good rant, and, and I don't disagree with anything you said about Mearsheimer um, individually, but I think you have to sort of detach him a little bit from that broader uh, sea change where I think realism is, is, is flexing its rhetorical muscles in the U.S. in a way that we haven't seen for a while, and I think that that is there. He's not the only example we can point to. Um, another way to no, put what, that what is we're seeing... What do we mean by constructive realism, Liam? That's what I'm trying to drive at. If it's flexing rhetorical muscles, is there a constructive yeah. realism coming out of this? I think there are elements. I, I, was, I was trying to point to one when I said that, you know, the fear of escalation is something that, you know, realists are warning about. We should listen to it, right? That's constructive. Um, but I suppose there it's not so much realism as a discourse that I'm interested here. It's the broader, I think, um, context that allows it to emerge, um, I think it's rather naive head, and that is the, the, what you might call the return of geopolitics. And that's because of the vacuum that, you know, um, a, a, a defeated globalization is looking into. I think that's the change that's really important, and that's why you hear this discourse. So, for example, what I'm talking about is how 
um, you know, Russia's uh, in, in invasion in Ukraine was something that, you know, some some liberals just that didn't think could happen because, you know, Russia was so tied into Europe, you know, through energy and so on. I mean, the reverse was true. It was Germany who was tied into Russia through this. In other words, the interconnectedness is what was weaponized. And that is something that Putin understood way ahead um, of people, you know, believing in a, a liberal international order in the West. Um, so I think we have to be, uh, you know, understanding um, that sort of broader picture here in which, you know, realism functions as a discourse, in my view, not an acceptable one, not, not one that's deeply explanatory, but one that I think has a renewed force for good reason. Yeah, but if you want to do that, Liam, that's why I take it farther. And here, let's, let's identify it by dealing with events rather than discourse. Mm. In that case, and specifically on Ukraine, because I got problems with the Biden administration on a whole range of other issues, specifically on Ukraine, the Biden administration are the realists here. Mm. They are the ones who months before Russia goes in, not only start telling folks, look, this could happen. They actually, as a good realist would do, is they actually let this be known in the media mm. to try to prepare for this to try to shift opinion coming on. Yeah, they did. So, you know, they were very realistically assessing the Russians. Uh, the realists, if you want to talk about the realists that are there, are not people like Mearsheimer, not Walt, uh, not the folks, you know, who at other institutes in it. They are not even Bertheim. And we could talk about what he means by redemption. They're the folks who actually said Russia is intervening in U.S. politics. Russia's interfering in the U.S. elections. Those were the realists. Mm. But, of course, what happened here is, is that some of the so-called realists actually bashed the folks. Mearsheimer has to be one of them, says, oh, we, we don't see that much evidence of Russian intervention in the U.S. Well, how unrealistic is that as a realist to say that you don't see evidence of Russian intervention going back not only to 2016, but even back to 2014? Yeah, I suppose in a nutshell, what would worry me about, you know, Mearsheimer's read of of, um, of Putin is that he he sees him as a rational actor. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's actually an interesting twist on that, which, again, Liam points, absolutely, we need to have this discuss what realism is. In other words, a pragmatic realism, one which isn't just simply a posturing realism that's there. And that is in that New Yorker interview of... Uh, Mearsheimer is a little bit caught out because things aren't going well for Russia. Uh, and so he finally says, oh, well, recognition of nationalism is part of realism. Mm. Now, that that is a twist. That's a little change in terms of. And the yeah. fact here is, is that, yeah, you know, you, you have to tap. You have to look at what Putin's doing, not only in terms of what his conception of Russian nationalism is, but how he taps into it as a device mm. with his constituency. Mm. Um, and again, what gets me is from. Instead of going to all those U.S.-based realists, there are loads of Russian experts out there we could have gone to, right, before uh, the Ukraine invasion to tap into this. But, you know, that gets us back into the old argument about who gets the headlines, who gets the, you know, who gets the attention uh, when, yeah. in terms of the way the world is framed. Okay, I'm just going to dive in. I'm mindful of the time and I could talk for 10 hours on any single strand of this. I just want to move us a little bit sideways, if you don't mind, thinking about how the sort of uh, challenge of US-China competition could best be managed now by the Biden administration, not least because um, President Xi has disappeared, uh, had, had declared not not that long ago. Um, uh, 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 he talked of a no limits, that was the term I think used, a no limits partnership with Vladimir Putin. So how how might the U.S. sort of pragmatically respond or deal with that when relations are already 
you know, not particularly good with China at the moment. William, you want to have a crack at that? Well, the area that interests me is a bit off to one side, but it does. It, I'll come at it that way. Scott, you'll know much more of the context here politically and diplomatically. A story that caught my eye yesterday sort of left field uh, feeds into this um, uh, because it's a long story with a long tail I've been following for a couple of years. And um, it's what the U.S. Is, is, is doing right now in response to TikTok and seeing it as a threat, right? Now, we see that emerging uh, late 2020 with Donald Trump deciding he's going to ban, you know, unilaterally ban TikTok in the, in the United States. That didn't work out. Um, but we also see with the Biden administration that that idea has still been in play in some fashion. Um, and then at the end of last year, we had the banning of uh, the use of TikTok on, on federal um, networks. Um, and then at the start of this year, we saw a number of states following suit, about 20 of them now have banned federal employees from using TikTok. And then that includes public universities. A lot of them are now trying to do the same thing. So this story has been growing and growing, and I've sort of been following it. And then yesterday, TikTok finally spoke, which is to say they've kept their heads down for two years. They've been lobbying like crazy in Washington. I looked up the figures um, a few days ago. I see they spent... Um, $5.5 million in lobbying in Washington last year alone. Now, let's put that in context. You know, Meta spent $20 million in the same year, <laughs> okay, and Amazon spent even more. But nonetheless, TikTok has been putting huge lobbying pressure into Washington very quietly. It's been dealing in particular with a little-known committee called the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, about which we rarely hear little, but it's a very powerful committee. But TikTok finally decided a few days ago that it wasn't getting anywhere with this. And so it released its ideas and what it would do to maintain TikTok um, in the United States. Because, of course, what's happening is that this regulatory pressure is damaging it. And what it's worried about is that this will lead it to, you know, a bite dance might have to divest entirely at some point in time. So what TikTok came up with, um, and of course, what I'm saying here, this is part of the proxy tech cold war with the China, right? This is this is my example of that. Um, and, I, and, and, I, and I think this, this tech cold war is really heating up and becoming very, very fascinating. Think of the ban on semiconductors that the Biden administration put through at the end of last year. This is all of a piece, right? Um, and when you think of the relationship with Taiwan that makes, you know, 65% of the world's semiconductors, you can see here that there's both economic and tech as well as political issues in play in this, this discussion, this relationship with China. So what does TikTok do and why was I led to the story yesterday? Well, the New York Times reported on it yesterday. They were one of the, um, I suppose, one of the parties in attendance at this um, announcement by TikTok. And what TikTok has done is they have been working quietly with Oracle, one of America's biggest uh, software companies, to create a, a kind of virtual firewall, which will mean that all U.S. users of TikTok's information will remain in the United States and will not be seen externally. Now, there are some who would argue that's simply not possible. But nonetheless, this is what they're trying to achieve. This is what they're trying to put forward. They're calling it Project Texas. Um, and you probably will hear more about that because TikTok are, are stepping out of the shadows here and they're putting on, you know, quite uh, quite heavy uh, economic and diplomatic gloves. Uh, they, they believe that the quiet approach to the Biden administration has not been working for them. So I, I, I'm keeping an eye on that, on that what I call that proxy cold, tech, cold war of, 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 of tech, because I think it's absolutely tied up with this this broader conflict between the, the U.S. and China, which, um, you know, we all thought two years ago, 
would be the only key conflict we'd be talking about maybe this year. We hadn't seen Russia coming, um, nor had the U.S. If you go back to the national security strategy, they assumed that everything would focus on China, but that hasn't been the case. But um, if you start that focus on China, you have to look at tech. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, in a broader context, I think the Biden administration, and this is, <laughs> I'm going to double back and say, all right, <laughs> I'll invoke a realism at this point. I think the Biden administration made a big misstep when they decided in 2021, partly for domestic reasons, partly because of their own global assessments, we're, we're going to go feet first. We're going to go studs up in terms of challenging China. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the democracy versus autocracy rhetoric was linked to this and so on. In fact, it's, uh, the Chinese were already in a phase where they were ready to do battle with the Americans, having gone through the whole tariff charade with with Trump. And what you had is, is the Biden folks almost stoking up conflict there. And you might remember the fiasco, how quickly it recedes with the Australian, uh, uh, with the Australian submarines, mm-hmm. where you get the French and the, the British involved as well. He's like, come on, guys, what are you doing here? Um, what you have to hope is, is that really after a lot of posturing over China, do you get to a point where lines are drawn? Um, and in terms of, all right, fine, we're still competitors. Liam's referred to the tech side more broadly, the whole question of what are effectively two competing economic systems, mm. which is what you're dealing with. But then you draw lines in terms of, of, of what you don't cross. And, and there's one incident which I'd point you to, which is when, when Liam's friend, Nancy Pelosi, I just say his, his friend, Nancy Pelosi, because he writes about her quite a bit. When Nancy went to Taiwan last year, which was a way of showing U.S. support for Taiwan, right? And I'm, it was done. I'm sure the Biden administration knew what was going on. But there was a Biden phone call. It was a private call. We had readouts of it, but it effectively drew the lines. And you'll notice that after that phone call and so on, the whole question of China taking over Taiwan receded, even if you still had issues of military pressure, military overflights, which took place. Claudia, you talked about Xi's no limit statement regarding Russia. In practical terms, the Chinese have been very careful about putting their head above the parapet and supporting Russia over Ukraine. Yeah. They've been very careful about that, especially in terms of any military support, which the U.S. called them out on early. And you may have noticed a few days ago that the U.S. actually called them out on non-military support as well. And so for that reason, uh, I think the question going ahead in 2023 specifically is, all right, are you going to have sort of lines drawn in terms of, all right, we're not going to cross these? By the way, when was the last time you heard about Hong Kong, Xinjiang province? So the whole idea of pushing for human rights and democracy, that's gone. But where do you go in terms of, again, what is a realigned uh, international configuration? Maybe or maybe not order. Because you'll notice a lot of European countries have been reassessed in their position on China. The Germans were considered the ones that were most open to trade. The Eastern Europeans much more skeptical. And just one small thing to notice in terms of lines that were drawn. You notice that a Taiwan economic interest section opened in Lithuania and, and the Chinese stomped their feet immediately. They said, this is unacceptable. You can't recognize Taiwan. It happened. The Chinese backed off of that, right? So there are actually multiple players here in terms of where you get, which comes back to Liam's point, which is I don't think the international order is gone. I don't think it's the end of the international order, but I think you got to turn the kaleidoscope on what we mean by international order because of multiple layers. Because, by the way, we haven't even talked about the pandemic, which is still having an effect in China, even as we speak. Yeah, the reports coming out of China, you know, it seems to be really hitting hard now, the pandemic. Um, I think uh, 
And yeah, I mean, one of the things we, we just seem an awful long way away from, you know, Bill Clinton and democratic enlargement as being the the, the framework of, of uh, international politics. And I, you know, I think lots of these issues are incredibly confounding. And I think that's one of the, you know, from a simple picture, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And you think, well, no, they're not. You know? <laughs> they're also your enemy. It's very confusing, I think, in that school. Claude, I know we, we're sort of having to wind up a little bit. Claude, do you want to sort of um, push our guests on maybe in, in predictions rather than... Uh, yeah, absolutely. If we just take take the last uh, three or four minutes just to, to, to wrap up, I know there's some uh, enormous issues there just left hanging for your next visit to our podcast, hopefully. Um, but just to, to, to round up and maybe a, a few reflections from, from both of you on, you know, what what will the priorities be, you know, in the next couple of years? I know, obviously, you know, Ukraine is still very much taking up the bandwidth and, you know, hopes to be an end to that um, in at least the medium term. China, we've just been hearing about. Are there other issues? I mean, you know, climate's all consuming in many ways. Are, are there other things, other priorities that, that Biden would be sort of thinking about um, coming up to uh, 2024? Scott, if we start with you, maybe? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's going to be a question a little bit about policy regarding um, Mexico. In Central America, because immigration will resurge as a, a an election mm. issue in 2024, and Biden made a tentative step, of course, to it with that idea of all right. Now I'm going to show leadership on the border issue. Where's Kamala Harris? You could ask that question, by the way. Um, so that will be in the frame. There will be a question, I think, more broadly to keep your eye on in terms of what they do regarding Brazil after the flutter that was down there with the uh, you know the what was a, a very bumbled coup attempt against uh, against Lula. Um, I think there's a question about what they do on Africa, where there was this belated attempt to say, oh, we care about Africa. We're going to have a summit regarding Africa. But there's an idea that as the Russians and the Chinese have been moving in Africa, the Americans have sort of been spinning their wheels. Um, and indeed, the Europeans have as well. Um, I think there's going to be a question in terms of what the Asian realignment is going to be. Uh, you know, South Korea and Japan, again, partly because of the wider implications of Ukraine, partly because of China. That's all in the play. But here's two things to bring it all back. Well, actually, three things. And I'll end to lead in neatly to Liam to then really put the cat amongst the pigeons. I think the first is, is that looking at a conflict which is likely to carry on for quite some time, Ukraine will be a focus. It'll be a symbolic focus um, rather than, say, least, rather than, say, Asia in terms of what takes place. Secondly, um, I think you're going to see the Biden administration on other issues beyond Ukraine struggle to get clarity because there's just it's very hard for the American public to pick up on everything that's happening. And then thirdly, everything possibly changes in 2024 when you get someone like possibly a president, Ron DeSantis. And not only with what that means on the U.S. domestic front, which we talk about, but the fact that that's almost a wild card regarding U.S. foreign policy. Mm. Uh, Let's just hope that the system holds up for the next couple of years, and then we'll take on November 2024 when it happens. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I, that's a great read globally, Scott. So I, I, I won't even add to that because you, you've got a great list of things there that are, are, are sort of in the in-tray, but we, you never quite know what's going to come in. Um, one thing you do know, though, going forward is that foreign policy probably won't matter a jot in the election. It rarely does. Let's be honest about that, okay? It might be indirect, but not direct. Um, I would think that possibly the biggest foreign policy story domestically in the United States for the next year is Afghanistan. Why do I say that? Because the Republicans will set up a whole lot of committees to investigate what Biden did wrong. That will put Afghanistan at the top <laughs> in a very indirect fashion. I'm just saying that domestic politics will lead. And, and that relationship between domestic and foreign me is 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 always a fascinating one um you know uh, when 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 we see the, the the biden team sort of get 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 it get into into place there you know the last couple of years you know they, they do talk about democracy promotion but they also talk about this idea of a foreign policy for the middle class you remember this it's it's one of the things that jake sullivan in particular like to talk about um, you know, Sullivan's idea here is, you know, foreign policy is domestic policy, but whatever we do, we have to make sure that it's good and, you know, for the ordinary people of America. When I hear that, I realize, you know, that they were listening to Trump in some fashion, you know, that's, that's America first in a different rhetorical guise. And that, that's kind of where we're moving. And that's interesting in all kinds of ways. Whether you like it or not, Trump pointed out a very inconvenient truth, and that is America could not continue some form of global supremacy at the expense of economic stability in the United States. And the gap between those two things is dangerous for all political leaders in the United States. And that's the gap I think I'd be watching in 23 and into 24. Yeah. Okay. I, I fully that's agree, which means it, it comes back to the fact that if you get economic stability on the home front, it frees up the Biden folks in terms of what they can do overseas. If you get economic instability at home, then you've got administration that's going to be much more constraining what it can do beyond America. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. I mean, so much. I wish we could carry on and certainly it'd be great to have you two back. I mean, just, yeah, I sort of want to say in response to what you two have just said, and um, but, uh, but I won't because... <laughs> Uh, we haven't got the time, but that's a, that's just a, a fantastic discussion. Um, yeah, I've stopped myself. Claudia, do you want to say anything just to, to wrap up? Just a thank you to Professor Liam Kennedy. Thank you, Professor Scott Lucas. I knew it would be a pleasure, and it was so much food for thought. So thank you both so much, and I sincerely hope you'll come back and pick up on, on some, at least some of these strands in the future. Yeah, we did have a, a list of topics, and we've, we've 